God, you are the everlasting God. You are a you are the living God who is eternal, who is self-sufficient, who has no need for anyone or anything. You have righteousness and justice as the foundation of your throne. God, you reign and rule over the cosmos in, in such a way that you're the one that spoke everything into existence out of nothing. All the myths about the gods and how they're created all contain some aspect of the gods making humanity to serve them because they need help or because they, they wanted something. But you, God, are distinct in every way. You are perfect within yourself, fully satisfied in need of no thing from no one. And yet, God, you've created us, you've created this world that we would share in the joy of knowing you, worshiping you, and living life under your good and perfect rule. God, we praise you because you're God. And because you're God, as we see so many different heartbreaking and chaotic things happening in our world, in our city, and in our lives, because you are God, we come to you asking for you to help. We come to you asking that you would give wisdom to our government, to our rulers, to exercise power and authority justly. We come to you as the creator of all things, as the one who calls your people to care for the widow, for the orphan, for the sojourner, for the oppressed. We come to you asking God that you would lead your church to walk humbly with you and to do justice. We come to you as a God of all comfort, that you would comfort us in our sorrows and our afflictions and our trials, big and small, but that you would also comfort the people in our country right now that are hurting, that are confused, the people who are separated from families who are wondering, what is going to happen with my friends or my kids? God, would you be the comforter? And we pray, God, to you because you are God over all, because you are the one who brings in acts to save us through your work, through the work of your son, Jesus Christ. We come to you asking for all the churches that are gathering right now across this city that you would bless their work, that all the churches that are striving as best as they can to hold faithful to your gospel, to hold faithful to your word, to, to help the good news of Jesus go out, that you, God, would bless their labors and our efforts. And we pray, Father, as we turn to your word, that is God-breathed, that is able to transform us and equip us and correct us and reprove us, that you would open our eyes to understand, to savor, to enjoy your word. And that as we turn to your word, that you would exalt Jesus Christ, that we would leave in awe of him, that we would be drawn to him, that we would become devoted to him, and that we would put our trust in him. We pray this for our good, but we pray this for the glory of your name to be shown off and displayed in our lives together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is the last week of our, our deeper series. In this series, we've been talking about what does it look like for us to go deeper as gospel people? And we've identified that in a couple of different identity points, a couple of different aspects of gospel people, of spiritually mature disciples of Jesus. So we're going to do a little, a little quiz. 
who remembers some of the different identity points we've gone over through the series Deeper? <laughs> I do. <laughs> who remembers? What are some of the identity points of gospel people that we've talked about over the last couple weeks? Yeah. Yep. Stir one another up as disciple makers. Yep. So engage disciple makers. Yeah. Yep, fishers of people. So another aspect of disciple making is that one aspect, we stir one another. We're to encourage one another. We're to build one another up within the body of Christ. Another aspect is to engage disciple makers. We are to fish for people. We're to take the good news of Jesus beyond just ourselves. And we'll remember the other one. That's good. That's two out of, that's two out of three. That's 66.6%. <laughs> I think. That might not be. And we'll remember the other one? It has the word gospel in it. Gospel, gospel-centered believers, yep. Carrie, that doesn't count because you made the graphic. <laughs> gospel-centered believers, right? This is what it means to be gospel people. It's really, if you really look at what spiritually mature disciples of Jesus do, it's really around some of these identities. You could phrase them in different ways, you can clump them in different ways, but we're centered on the gospel first. You can't be spiritually mature uh, disciple of Jesus if you're not rooted and anchored in the person and work of Jesus. And then out of that, out of that anchoring in our identity, we, we then live out the mission that Jesus called us to. We're engaged disciple makers. And this week, we're going to talk about the gospel identity of responsible siblings. That the gospel actually brings us into a, a new family, the family of God. So responsible siblings. And the big idea for today, the big idea, I think, from uh, part of this text is this, is that we're to live as responsible siblings because Jesus has made us family. We're to live as responsible siblings because Jesus has made us family. Let's read Matthew 12, 46 through 50. Matthew's gospel, Jesus is in the, in the middle of his ministry. Things are booming. The crowds are noticing. The nations are buzzing. The people are gathering. And Jesus, in the middle of teaching, he's just been healing and proclaiming the kingdom of God with authority and power that nobody has ever seen before. And this is what happens next. 46. While he, Jesus, was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, he said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is a, uh, a hard candy teaching of Jesus. So old preacher that describes some of Jesus' sayings as hard candy. That if you just try to swallow it real quick, you're going to choke. But if you hold it in your mouth, you savor it, you think on it, you reflect on it, you see its sweetness, its beauty, and the fact that it's life-giving. You read this quick, and this rubs you the wrong way. But if we sit with it, we savor it, we see why Jesus' teaching here is life-giving. The reason why this, this uh, passage rubs us the wrong way is because Jesus is challenging our idea of family and allegiance. All right, what, what's happening in this scene? Jesus is teaching, and who shows up? His family, yep. So, so who shows up? So who shows up? Okay, 
Who shows? This is a two. This is a two-way street. So who shows up? His family shows up. His family shows up. So Jesus is preaching, teaching, and all of a sudden, mom and his brothers they show up. Sister, everyone's here. They're on the outside now. Jesus is popular, so this is a large crowd. So it's not like he can look and just see them. Presumably, this is, a, this is a big crowd, so much to the point that somebody has to come and tell Jesus, hey, guess what? Your mama's here. She's over there. And they're probably expecting, okay, Jesus is going to take a break and go see what's going on. And Jesus, when he finds out that his, his family's here, he, he asks a question. He gives a riddle. He makes this a teaching point. He says, who's my mother and who's my brother? Well, the man's like, well, Them. The people that said they are, you know, the, the person that gave birth to you, the people you're related to by, by blood. It's pretty easy, Jesus, right there. But Jesus says, well, who is it? And then he stretches his hand over the crowd of his disciples. He says, this is my mother. This is my brother. These are my sisters. And everyone who does the will of my Father in heaven, that's my family. This is interesting, isn't it? This is strange, isn't it? This is different, isn't it? Now, Mark 3.21 gives us a sense of how Jesus' family was regarding him at this time. That passage says, when his family heard about this, what his ministry was exploding and doing, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. So his family is like, we've got to rein Jesus in. Things are, things are wild here. What is he about? We've got to rein him in. And Jesus is in the middle of his teaching and healing ministry, proclaiming salvation to the world. And his family wants to pull him aside and talk to him because things are getting a little, little out of hand. And when Jesus says, this is my family, I imagine in that crowd you could hear a pin drop. I imagine in that crowd, things go quiet. I imagine when word gets back to his family, they gasp. Because this is absolutely countercultural. If this rubs you the wrong way, to Jesus' original audience, this was nonsensical. This was not, this was not a category that they had. That he is going to say, you're not my family, you are my family. Because in the New Testament, the controlling principle is the group dynamic, is the group structure, is the family unit. That is the controlling principle in this context and time. So Jesus is not just saying something that rubs us the wrong way. Jesus is turning his back in a way on the controlling, organizing group principle of this culture and context by saying, my blood family is not my primary family. These people are my family. Not only is the group priority over individual in this context, group structure, but in the New Testament context, the person's most important, fam or most important group was their family. And the closest bond within the family was the sibling bond. Not even, the, not even the spouse, not even the husband and wife. That was more kind of contractual for advantages for family. The closest bond was the bond of the siblings. So do you, do you, do you see how significant and how countercultural what Jesus is saying truly is? There's an ancient, uh, ancient I think, second century Jewish writing that, that says this, and it, it shows the power of the group structure and the power of the family bond. It says, uh, the author says this, "...with three things I am delighted, for they are pleasing to the Lord and to human beings." Harmony among siblings, one. 
friendship among neighbors, and a wife and a husband living in harmony. But notice what's first on that list. Harmony among siblings. That the family unit, the group unit, is the controlling principle. And within that, the thing that is tightest in that unit is the bond between siblings. And so Jesus is saying, that's not my mother, that's not my brother. You all are this new, unique family to me. This is revolutionary. Jesus is showing that his central allegiance is not first to his family, but to God And that this allegiance changes how we relate to others. Elsewhere, Jesus puts a similar teaching like this. He says, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father, your mother, your wife, and your children, your brothers and sisters. Yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. It's Luke 14, 26. So Jesus is saying there is something that has to be so unique about your allegiance to me that other allegiances by comparison, almost look like hate because your allegiance to me is that strong. This is countercultural. This is a hard candy teaching. Jesus is showing us that allegiance to him supersedes group structure, which is the way they would have thought then, but allegiance to him also supersedes the way we think now, individualism. We think now not in group structure. We think now in, well, what, what is best for me? What is true for me? What is going to make most for my dreams and, and my aspirations? We don't think about the family unit. Right? One example is think of this movie Titanic. You guys seen this one? It's an old one, old classic. And what's the story? It's a, it's a love story, right? You got Jack and you got who? You guys remember? Rose. Yeah, yeah, Rose. Okay, that's sunk in. You guys really know this movie. Oh, wow, good. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. My first pun. Thank you. So you got Jack and you've got Rose, right? And, you know, sparks start flying. And Rose is torn. She has a choice, right? Jack, who is rich or poor? Poor. And the other guy, who is rich or poor? Rich, right? And she's torn. And what does she do? Jack. She follows her heart. I mean, she obviously... I think kind of like the other guy, but she, she really liked this guy. So she follows her heart. Who's upset about that? Who's upset? Well, the other guy, yes. Her mother, her family. Her family is upset. So, so think about the cultural differences, right? In our time, for us, it was like, follow your heart. Follow your heart. Go, follow your heart. In that time, right or wrong, in that time, Right, if you were to play, uh, play the Titanic back then in the first, second century, everybody would have been like, what are you doing? This guy's got the money. Your, fa- your whole family would be set. As long as he's a decent person, your whole family would be set. The, the organizing principle of thinking was not you, it was what is best for the family. And so I bring that as the illustration. That's the way they think here. So for Jesus to say, hey, mama, quiet. This is my family. That would have been mind-boggling to his audience. Absolutely mind-boggling, more so than it is to even us now. 
And Jesus is showing, he's challenging, he's taking an axe and, and swinging it at the root of our cultural concepts of both family and the individual. He's, he's really attacking and chopping down both the old way of thinking, family group structure, right? No, no individualism really at all. And he's also swinging the axe at, at our overemphasis on the individual. He's swinging the axe at both of those things at the same time, but he's not swinging that axe and destroying just for the sake of doing it, just for the sake of making things difficult, just for the sake of making life hard. No, he's swinging that axe because he wants to replant something else that's greater. So he's deconstructing in order to reconstruct something greater and better and more life-giving for all of us. That's what he's doing. Jesus is trying to show us a truer way, a truer and better way of relating to God, spiritual family, and biological family. He's placing in our hands a new lens through which to see all of those important God-ordained relationships and dynamics. See, Jesus only puts priority on his spiritual family when his biological family tries to supersede the will of God. Jesus doesn't do this because he's like, my mom is annoying. Jesus does this because there's a conflict. Jesus doesn't do this because I don't like my family. Turn your back on your family. No, he does this when there's a conflict between the will of God and the will of his mother. He does this when there's a conflict between the family of God and his family of origin. He says, when these two things are bumping heads, the will of God wins. The word of God wins. My Father in heaven wins. Jesus is showing us that when allegiances clash in the life of a disciple, the will and word of God always wins. Does this make Jesus a bad son? No, this makes him a godly son. Think about this. And at the end of uh, John's gospel, Matthew, uh, or excuse me, John 19, 26, Jesus is hanging, dying, bleeding, stretched out for our salvation. And some of his last words are about his mother to his beloved disciple, John. He looks at John and he looks at his mother and he says, John, this is your mother. Mother, this is your son. Jesus loves his family so much that with his dying breath, he entrusts his mother to his best friend and his best friend to his mother. He says, take care of her. So Jesus is not opposed to family. Jesus is not opposed to deep love for our family unit. Not at all. He's just saying there is a right order and allegiance that actually is more life-giving for everything. Jesus is showing that there is a right order and right love, and there is then a dis, uh, displaced love and a disordered allegiance that will actually undermine what we're really trying to do. The scriptures never call us to disregard our family for God, but God does call us to never disregard Him for our family. Jesus is calling us to a proper allegiance. And actually, by this proper allegiance, do you know what Jesus creates? A new spiritual family, the people of God, the church, which is primarily a people, not a building. Jesus creates a new family through this proper allegiance because of his work in the gospel. Now, you guys have all seen things like Jerry Springer or Maury, and you've seen those episodes where it's the paternity test, right? 
who is the daddy? And they got to they gotta do the test, right? They do DNA test, the paternity test to figure out, you know, which of uh, the people sitting in the chairs is, you know, is, is paying the child support, right? Who is the daddy? But Jesus gives us a sort of test here in this text to show what, it, what does it mean to be a part of the, the family of God? And what does he say? Whoever does the what? The will of the father, my mother, brother, sister. That's what unites the church, the family of God. And if we look through the Gospels, we look specifically through John 7, uh, 751, that the will, uh, the will of the Father in relation to, to Jesus is to trust him, is to believe in him, and then to live in obedience to him, to follow him. So it is gospel faith followed by obedience. And what Jesus is showing is that he has built a new family, a new spiritual family, a new spiritual body, the people of God, the church. And Jesus builds this not just by thinking of it, but Jesus does this by action. He does it by dying in our place. He does it by taking our sins. He does it by taking our guilt. He does it by bearing our shame upon his shoulders and being our substitute who absorbs God's controlled, pure, and righteous wrath on our behalf, restoring us to the Father, but then bringing us into the people of God. See, we think so much of our salvation is between us and Jesus, but the way God sees it is my people. This is my people. I have saved a people from all tribes, nations, and tongues, all cultures, all backgrounds. I have saved a people, the church, the spiritual family. And this is so beautiful that in Ephesians 3, the manifold wisdom and beauty of God is described as not being primarily seen in the fact that God created everything out of nothing. The wisdom and beauty of God is not primarily seen in the fact that God is eternal with no beginning and no end, but that the wisdom and beauty of God in a manifold way is shown through the people of God. That a people from different backgrounds, cultures, interests, likes, are united as a family around the grace and work of Jesus. That the beauty of God is displayed in a diverse family, the church. See, one of the challenges for us is that individualism in America and in the West has gotten so much into our, our water stream and into our thinking that we begin to overlook the fact that the beauty of God is displayed in Jesus creating a new spiritual family. So do we believe that intellectually? And then if we do, do we live that practically? Do we live out the family identity in the church that Jesus has secured for us? I want you to think about this call that Jesus is giving us to a new allegiance. One of the great things about Jesus, and there are many, but one of the great things is that he always, always puts his skin in the game. He always lives out and embodies the very thing he's calling us to. What do you think about this? What if Jesus operated the way the average Christian in North America operates? When the will and call of God is on his life and his family comes to distract him from it. That he is busy doing the work and will of God, teaching and proclaiming salvation, healing and ministering, and his mama comes and says, no, you need to come pay attention to me. You need to come do these things. What if Jesus operated like the average North American Christian? We would have no salvation to proclaim. Well, mama, I do need to go to the cross and die for the sins of my people. 
No. If Jesus was as individualistic as we are, we would have no salvation to proclaim. Jesus embodies his teaching here. Jesus embodies the new allegiance that he's calling his disciples to. He says, you follow, following me means you follow in the allegiance footsteps that I have set forward, that it's the will of God, the people of God that is your new driving allegiance, not just your individualism and not just for first century what your family says. Do you see that? He embodies it himself. And if he were not, we would have no salvation to proclaim. But praise God, Jesus didn't just listen to his siblings, but then he went forward to Jerusalem to be crucified for us, to bring us into the family of God. Do you see it? You see, Jesus himself saw that in this moment, he had to turn his back from his family in order to bring us into God's family. Do you see? This is what Christ has done for us. So this call, this hard candy teaching is actually good news that Jesus has embodied for himself. He's showing us how life-giving it truly is. And now because of his work in the gospel, we are siblings in the family of God. But not only are we siblings, we're called to be responsible siblings. We're called to be responsible siblings. Now, I want to I show you this again, that this is right-ordered love that Jesus is calling us to. And I just want to show you this because the scriptures are not calling us to reject our family. There are many commands that Jesus says we are to honor our family, we're to provide for our family, we're to care for our family. But he is calling us to a right-ordered allegiance. And I want you to see that this right-ordered allegiance is so critical for actually loving our family well. And uh, one of the ways to think about this is what would happen when we elevate something to a place that it's not supposed to be in? When we elevate our family or our individualism too high, we actually undermine it. And Jesus is actually calling us to a right-ordered allegiance. He's calling us to be responsible siblings. He's calling us to live out the family identity that he has secured so I want to paint this picture of a responsible sibling for us to make this now practical from seeing Jesus teaching here. How many of you have siblings? Okay, so a lot of us, almost, almost everybody, okay. Um, so a lot of us have siblings, right? How many of you have been in a group project? Yeah. Now, the thing with the group project is that you did all the work, right? You... <laughs> I could tell. You guys are the people that, that were the people that did all the other work. And everyone else was just riding the coattails to that B+. Now think of if people tr treated group projects, whether elementary, high school, grad school, whatever. If people treated group projects like family, the outcome might not necessarily be any better. But if people treated group projects like family and said, not only am I family, but I'm responsible family, you would actually see a difference. The problem with those group projects is people just say, hey, I'm a part of this group, I'm a part of this family, but I'm not that responsible, you're going to carry the weight. But if everyone says, no, I'm going to contribute because I'm a part of this thing, then things become different. And Jesus is saying that we have been brought into the family of God, and by implication of this throughout the rest of the New Testament, we see that we are to be responsible family in the church. So what does this look like to be a responsible sibling in the family of God? Jesus, our common Savior, uniting us to our Father in heaven. I want to do this in two ways. I want to show you the attitudes of a responsible sibling. Can you guys say attitudes? 
attitudes. The attitudes are responsible sibling. Then we're going to look at the actions. The attitudes are responsible sibling. The first thing that a responsible sibling does is that they believe that the church is the means of deep spiritual transformation. It's the first attitude of a responsible sibling. They believe that the church is a means of deep spiritual transformation. We've got a, a quote for, from this that Greg's going to throw up. Um, this is from uh, Joseph Hellerman, who wrote a, a really helpful book, When the Church Was a Family. He says this, Spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. Persons who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding, and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay grow. All he's saying there is that the church is actually a means of deep spiritual transformation because guess who you're dealing with in the church? Other sinners. Other people. And so the conflicts, the distinct personalities... The friction, the tension, the joys, the highs, the lows, all of those things are actually fertilizers, means by which God uses to grow us and to transform us spiritually. So we often think spiritual transformation happens by learning more. So I read more, or I understand more. There's absolutely a place for that, but there is also the place for actually getting in the game and being on the field. It's one thing to learn about forgiveness and bearing one another's burdens. It's another thing to actually have to do it. So deep spiritual transformation happens within the body of the church, and this is what responsible siblings do. They embrace this attitude because it's in by embracing this that you actually have the endurance to deal with not just the good but the difficult that happens within the life of the church. If you don't have this understanding, when the difficult happens, you just leave. Right? You see this happen so often. Oh, this was hard. I didn't like this, so I left. What's the, well, actually, no, press into that because that's actually at the, at the other end of that is actually growth for you. And so this is the first attitude. Responsible siblings believe the church is a means of deep spiritual transformation. And you know what's so, so significant about this is really the whole New Testament, that the key relationship for spiritual growth in the New Testament is not the marriage relationship. It's the relationship in the church. If you look at 1 Corinthians 6 and 7, Paul is like, hey, marriage, hey, singleness. Mm. They're both gifts. That's the other thing. They're both gifts. It's like one is a real gift and the other one is... mm. They're they're both gifts according to Apostle Paul, right? But if you look at the New Testament, you look at what has transformation happened. What are we supposed to do? The overwhelming attention is given to the dynamics and relationship within the body. That is the most important, humanly speaking, relationship that we have is within the body of the church. By far. Yet this is so counter to the way that we think. This is so counter to what we've even seen that we really don't know what to do with it. So a responsible sibling, even if they don't grasp that deeply, says, okay, I'm tracking with that. That's a new attitude that I'm stepping into. The second thing, second attitude is responsible siblings cherish the family of God rather than daydreaming about having a better one. How many of you guys daydream? You just find yourself, wow, what if this was like this? We daydream with our job. We daydream over a lot of things, right? It's easy to do that when we think about, oh man, I wish there were more people in my church that were like me. Or I wish there were more people in my gospel community that were like this. Or I wish there were more people that had this interest. Then we could do that, right? Hey, I understand that. 
But we also have to be careful with that because by daydreaming for another, we miss what's in front of us. We actually undercut the gift of the people that God has placed in, the, in this room, that God has placed in our lives. Right? We take the easy way. Wow, what if it was this? What if it was this? What if it was this? And we miss the hard road of, look at the good people that God has put in our lives. Let me walk with them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, uh, Life Together, says, uh, says this. He says, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. By thinking, by dreaming, by saying, oh, if people were more like this, or people did this, they opened up more, if they did this, if they did that, they did that, they did that, it's okay to desire that, but if that is all you fixate on, we're actually going to undercut the very thing that you're hoping for, because we won't appreciate one another and the gift that we are to each other. So responsible siblings cherish the people in front of, a, in front of them in the, in the family of God, not just daydream for, for others. The other, the other attitude is, is this. Responsible siblings know they're not responsible for everything. This is the one you guys are going to like. They know they're not responsible for everything. This is not a call for you to be responsible for your discipleship to Jesus and 10 other people's discipleship to Jesus. That is not what this means. This means that you understand, I don't do everything for you. But you know what? I'm going to be alongside of you to encourage you and to help you as best as I can. Your walk with Jesus is not my walk with Jesus. But I'm going to be alongside of you to encourage you and to help you. But I'm not responsible for everything about you. But I am responsible to help, to pray, to encourage. So responsible siblings understand that they are not responsible for everything. Next, we're going to talk about the actions of a responsible sibling. The actions. Um, you, you guys have heard this famous line from, from President Trump. Just kidding. From President uh, JFK. It'll wake you guys up real quick. You've heard this famous line from President JFK. Ask not what your country can. Ask what. Isn't it incredible that, uh, I mean, how, how long ago was he, was he in term, right? <laughs> so, like, the, think of how powerful that line is. That, that we can be some, some generations and some decades removed from that and, and still be able to, to pull that off, right? It says, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. So one of the actions, in, that's a responsible citizen, one of the actions of a responsible sibling in the, in the church of Jesus is that responsible siblings say, say we, they say us, not, not just you. They, they, their attitude, their action is we, not just you, not just them, not just uh, uh, I, it's, it's we, they don't just say, well, you could fix this and that would be better. They would say, well, what can we do? When we encounter a problem, what can we do? When you see someone struggling, it's not just, well, you just do this. It's, yeah, you do this, but what can we do to help? It's this orientation that, that we're family. So your problem becomes my problem. Not in the same way, but what can I do to help with that? How can I support you? How can I pray for you? It's a whole new orientation. And let me tell you that this is, this is definitely more costly. This definitely means when somebody else in the body hurts, that, that if you embrace this, that you begin to hurt as well. If we turn it from a you to a we. Now, the problem in their marriage begins to weigh on me because I'm grieved as well, because I'm embracing that as well. The struggles that they're having with infertility become not just their problems, but our problems as well. Now, I'm grieved as well. Now, I'm weeping as well, right? Do you see how this is costly? 
But do you see the beauty that comes out of it? The people of God bearing one another's burdens. The people of God loving one another beyond just word, but now into deed. Do you see the beauty of what Jesus is creating in the church? Do you see how life-giving that is? Think about it this way. What if the burdens that are on your back right now were not only on your back, but were being carried by a couple other brothers and sisters with you? Even if it's just in prayer, even if you just know, man, these people are praying for me regularly. You sense God's presence, faithfulness, and love through his people. So responsible siblings say we, not just you. The second action responsible siblings do is the responsible siblings connect and care imperfectly. Responsible siblings connect and care imperfectly. Uh, Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. To fulfill what Christ has commanded, that we love each other well in the church, we bear one another's burdens. I don't know if you guys have ever seen uh, somebody just try to carry too much. I see this every time uh, Kelsey, my wife, goes on a trip that I'm not going on, and I drop her at the airport, uh, and she's got our kids and a stroller and like a month's worth of clothes. And so she's like carrying one suitcase here. She's dragging Adrian there. Julian is talking to a stranger over there and has got like two strollers. She's just like trying to carry too much, right? She's trying to bear too much. In Galatians 6, the first few verses, if you actually encourage you to look at those, uh, there's this language of bear one another's burdens, but there's also this language of each carry one another's load. And it paints this picture of the Christian life that we each have a load that we're meant to carry that we are responsible for. We have a load that we are responsible for individually, but there are also burdens that we have that we are not meant to carry alone, right? Ideally, like my wife is not meant to carry all of those things alone by herself to get to the gate to check in, right? She needs me there. Sometimes I can't be there. Sometimes I can, but there are burdens that we have in life that we are not meant to carry all by ourselves. God has given us a spiritual family because sometimes our biological family is not there, or sometimes our biological family doesn't care, or sometimes our biological family is upset that we love Jesus. He's given us a new family to help us carry those burdens. That is a gift. Because Jesus, Jesus does this knowing, he says this elsewhere throughout the gospel, is that sometimes your allegiance to Jesus will cost you your family. So he says, let me help you. I will give you a new family that will not turn their back on you. So we have to carry one another's burdens. We care and connect imperfectly. You can't do this with everyone. That's why we do this imperfectly. This is why God gives us actually organizing principles to know, how, man, how can I do this? Think of our church. Our church is not gigantic, but if we think of every person that says, Redeemer's my home church, we have 60 adults or 60 people. We have probably about 45, 55 adults, and then we got 10 kids that we're responsible to care for as well. And as you know, Dave, the kids, the kids, right? So let's take a little more, a little more energy, right? So we're called to care for one another, but how do you do that? You're only one person. You have, bur- you have schedule, you have work, so, so how do we do this? God gives us organizing principles. One way to think about this is to think through, okay, if I'm in a gospel community with people, that helps, set, that helps me know, okay, these people. Let me try to do that with, with as much as I can, but okay, let me do it with these people. Or if you are beginning to form friendships with certain people within the church, okay, let me, let me try to do that with these people. Let me start here and go from here. That's why I think membership in the church is a, is a critical thing. Let me, let me do it with as many as I can, but let me also do it here with, with these members as well. It helps us begin to know where do I start. Because we cannot do this with everyone. But responsible siblings connect and care imperfectly. So I want you to think about this. Who are you connecting and caring for within the life of our church? 
Who are you connecting and caring for within the life of our church? So think about who are the people that you know that you can do that with, and maybe there's people on the fringes that you don't know that, that you can begin to do that with. I want to encourage you in this way as well. Paint, paint this, hopefully, a positive picture. What if, outside of our formal events, our Sundays or our groups, what if you, what if, because I know this is difficult, what if you connected with one person a week? Maybe some of you that's very doable. Maybe some of you that's going to be really challenged. But, but think of what, what would it look like for you to connect and care, to, to make a touch point with someone to connect and care one person a week or, or, or whatever that looks like for you. Think of what difference that would make. And this doesn't have to be, a, this doesn't have to be in person, four-hour coffee date, spill your soul. Right? You may even revert to the ancient art of the telephone call. You just press those buttons. Hello? And just, and just go, you haven't made a phone call in 10 years. Okay, maybe this is the first time to do that, right? But again, right, we can, we can be creative. What does it look like to connect and care? Maybe it's a note. It's a note to encourage somebody. Maybe it's a text message to, to ask, how can I pray for you? What's going on? How are you doing, right? Maybe it's, uh, it's just finding time to have people for a meal, integrating people into the things you're already doing to just to connect with them, to share life with them. And what happens as we begin to do this is that the burdens that we carry begin to be lifted because God is helping us, comforting us through his people. And when we live as responsible siblings, we put the gospel's power on display, strangers having become friends and now being a spiritual family. And as I think about Jesus teaching here and the crowds hearing this, his family hearing this, these are my brothers and my sisters, it just brings me back to, to, to an early moment in redemptive history. And I want us to close with this. It brings, it brings me back to the story of Cain and Abel. Do you remember Cain and Abel? It brings me back to Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel because Abel's sacrifice to God is more acceptable and more righteous. And God comes and he says his blood is crying out from the ground. He asks Cain, Where's your brother? And Cain says what? Am I my brother's? Am I my brother's keeper? It's interesting that the first major, major horrific thing gone wrong in a human relationship is not between a husband and wife, but it's between two siblings. Am I my brother's keeper? See, sin keeps us from caring for each other. Pride keeps us busy from letting people in and saying, I need help. Right? Sin divides us. Life keeps us busy so much to the point that we look up and five years has gone past and say, I haven't gone deep with anybody. But Jesus dies to restore us to the Father and to make us keepers of one another. The power of the gospel is that we now start to say yes to the question, am I my sister's keeper? We say, yes, I am, because Jesus has restored me to the Father and now brought me to this family. Yes to that question. I care for my sibling. I care for my brother. I care for my sister because of the restoration Christ has worked out for us. This is so much to the point that in Hebrews 2, Jesus is described as our brother. He unites us into the family of God. So maybe you failed to be a responsible sibling of God's family. Maybe you've done great at this. Be encouraged. And maybe you haven't even trusted Jesus yet. The call to all of us is the same. Trust in the work of Jesus to restore us to the Father and live out of the family identity that he has secured for us. And as we do that, we put the beauty of the cross on display and our lives are refreshed as we go through the trials of life, not alone, but together. 
Let's take a moment to pray and respond silently. As we do this, I want to encourage you to think about this call to be responsible siblings, to have a right-ordered allegiance to Jesus and to the people of God. And ask God, how is he calling you to respond in light of this text and his word and the gospel? Take a moment to pray silently, and then I will pray for us aloud. Father, we confess that there are ways in which we have uh, failed to have a right-ordered allegiance to you, that despite your extravagant and beautiful and transformative grace to us in Jesus, we have still placed things above you, whether it, it be uh, our ourselves uh, falling into the trap of individualism, whether it's been uh, even good things like our family that we have superseded over you. God, we confess that there are ways in which we have not loved one another well as the people of God. We ask that you would forgive our, uh, our negligence, our arrogance, our pride, or whatever barriers it has been that has stopped us from fulfilling this call to bear one another's burdens, to love one another as ourselves, and to be the people of God, the family of God together. We thank you for the grace that is ours in Jesus, who fulfilled this perfectly, who out of a pure allegiance to you created the people of God, the, the church, through his life, his death, his resurrection. We thank you that we are now empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk out this call, and we ask that you, God, would make it the desire of our heart to worship you and to love you by loving one another. Lord, if there are relationships that we need to, to mend by, by going forward and asking forgiveness, God, would you help us to do that? Lord, if there are places where we need help, would you remove our pride and allow, allow us to allow others to, to love us as the people of God and to be responsible siblings to us? Father, we ask, we ask for your help in this. This runs counter to how we're wired. This runs counter to, to our pride. But we know that through your Spirit's help in us, God, this is possible. And this puts the beauty of your Son's life, death, and resurrection on full display for the world to see. So, Father, help us. We thank you, God, for your grace and your patience with us, that you don't demand our obedience immediately, but that for those that are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. So, God, where we are challenged, Lord, let us be challenged. But let none of us walk out condemned, because in Christ, we are forgiven and declared righteous. Would you lead us by your Spirit as we respond in worship? And would the truths that we sing sink deep into our hearts and transform the way we live? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.